Hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. We're sponsored by Betfair. This is the Monday pod recapping an EFL weekend. Where in the championship. The second tier's premier Warlock, Warnock, knocks Blues block off. It was a P-Day celebration at Bristol City. Their great penalty drought ends after 469 long days and nights. All's wells that ended wells. Well, not for QPR, whose trigger finger got too itchy for Critchley. In the third tier, how do you like it? How do you like it? More, more, more. 19 unbeaten for Wednesday, for whom it's actually Saturday that's hump day. MK pumped 5-2 this time. Elsewhere, Stanley are the ones to tame the shrews. The Brewers, too fizzy for gas. And Cambridge beat Oxford in the boat race. No, you can't say that, mate. You cannot say that. They're not rivals. It's not a thing. Shut up. Sorry. In League Two, Barrow go wild at Bradford. Carlisle celebrate a year of Simpson with a homer win to leave Cole U groaning. And finally... El Miz is master of the ass once more as Orient look down at the rest of the division and dream a dream of times to come. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast sponsored by Betfair. Welcome one and all, but particularly my friend and co-host George Ellick. Welcome to you, mate. How are you? Nice discovery uh, doing the intro this week when I was listening to the song More, More, More the hit 1976 classic from Andrea True Connection. Um, there's a weird little like bridge bit near the end that was sampled by Len for their 1999 classic, Steal My Sunshine. Great when song. I, when I was listening to More, 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 I was like, hold on. This, what? It's the start. Is this going to remix into Steal My Sunshine? No. Sampling, eh? Did you know mm. about that? I didn't know about that, no. But Steal My Sunshine is one of those, you should have put it on Saturday, was it? Or yesterday, it was a Sunday, it was a lovely day. It's kind of the, the beginning of the summer day. Stick it on, get shorts on, even though it's like only 14 degrees. Get the sunnies on, even though the, the, the sun is so low, it doesn't make a difference. And uh, just vibe out. Um, it was a lovely weekend, wasn't it? We're going to start with major managerial news in the championship. Uh, the match was Middlesbrough 3, QPR 1. I'll just pay off the match before we get into what happened after it. Borough winning 3-1 for the second time in a matter of days after beating Sheffield United in the significant midweek fixture. Uh, it was a tricky first half for Borough. All reports were that QPR were surprisingly good. Their fans went into this uh, hugely pessimistic, but actually uh, they did about as well away at Borough as anyone has done in the last few months. But Borough did get going in the second half. Akpom at the double. Absolutely love how he celebrated his first goal. He went completely mad. He whipped his shirt off. He was swinging it around his head, threw it on the floor. And I just thought, George, if there's if there's a player that you'd least expect to be so overwhelmed with scoring that he rips his shirt off in celebration, it's the guy who's literally top scorer in the league and five clear of the next. Great scenes. Yeah, really weird celebration, especially because if you watched it, I mean, I, I was watching it back this morning, um, having obviously followed live, and I was like, ah, was it was it that late that he scored? Thinking maybe he just kind of, you know, if you score in the 83rd, you don't realise there are going to be three more goals. But no, 64 minutes, Tuba <laughs> scores a goal uh, and reacts as if he hasn't scored in, in years. Um, yeah, I think we have to say, and I have to hang my head in shame that we sat where I'm sat now and did our our championship team of the season so far and I left out Chubrakpom purely with the reasoning being that it felt like we were recording in the midst of a purple patch that was probably not going to be able to not going to not going to continue and um, I would look back at the end of the season and think why did I include Chuba just off the back of a couple of good weeks well how wrong was I because what he's doing at the moment is is just incredible um, 
it's it's not necessarily just the, the goal scoring. It reminds me a little bit of what Marcus Rashford's doing for, for Manchester United, where nice. you, you can almost kind of see the confidence flowing through every fibre of his being every time he unleashes a shot on goal. It feels like he is totally confident that he's going to put that away, whether it's with his with his head, his right foot or his left foot. Um, and yeah, he's for him to be playing basically a number 10 role with him not even the most advanced player in, in, in Borough's side, um, as was seen by the link-up play um, for their second goal as well. You know, what he's doing at the moment, again, similar to Rashford, I, I can't think of many examples of a player's performance level Long term, you know, with Akpom, it's been seasons um, taking such a massive jump. I don't think anyone can deny his talent uh, and the fact that he has obviously very high calibre in terms of where he's come from. But you're a liar if you're saying that you expected Chuba Akpom to, to come forward and become the, the top scorer in the championship this season, playing a number 10 role. Uh, Michael Carrick deserves massive credit for creating a side where Akpom can, can score playing that role. Rapcom can score playing as a 10 and they still maintain threats from, from all other angles. You know, Riley McGree is also playing this incredible hybrid role where we're just seeing him get into goal scoring opportunities consistently. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, it wasn't vintage Barrett in the first half. QPR put in a, a better, more spirited performance, but the relentless pressure, the relentless attacking vigour of, of Barrett eventually shone through and, and you know, the inevitability that his true Rackpom was, was eventually the, the, the person who broke the deadlock, much to his delight. Uh Johnny Housen getting a well-deserved rest and the January signing of Dan Balas uh, suddenly makes a lot of sense and brings a lot of quality. His first goal contribution was that lovely cross from deep on the right-hand side onto the head of Akpom, exactly the sort of quality delivery that we've seen him provide for some time now. Now, on a bad day for QPR, we still saw surely their goal of the season. Ilias Chair watched Hannibal's free kick from last weekend and said, yeah, I can do this way better. Um, has anyone seen an alternative angle of that free kick? Because I haven't seen one. Maybe I maybe I looked away when it got shown on the highlights. Maybe I, I maybe I haven't been monitoring social media as closely as I should have done yesterday for an alternative angle. That's that's the goal of the weekend that I most want to see from another angle because camera one, as they call it, the main camera, doesn't do it justice at all. And I would wager, just from what we can see, there's a moment, I reckon, halfway to goal where that ball is miles outside the post. It was so, so good. It, it's like, like um, who was the keeper for, for Hannibal's uh, free kick? Oh, it was Button. Button got loads of stick for that, right? It looks quite bad. I haven't seen that many people giving Stefan stick, even though it was even further out. Uh, it was just absolutely perfect. But, George, I'm going to shift my tone here. Sunday, club statement, corner flag, etc. Neil Critchley sacked by QPR. Uh, as part of the uh, statement, QPR... Uh, CEO Les Hoos said after seeing the team slip from playoff contenders to one being drawn into a relegation battle the board felt it had to act there is no doubt Neil inherited a difficult situation when he joined and we would like to acknowledge his superb work ethic and professionalism throughout our dealings he is a fantastic man and we have no doubts he will go on to be a success elsewhere just as he was with Blackpool Neil Critchley sacked by QPR uh, he won his first game against Preston but since then, five draws and five defeats in the championship. No win in 10. The worst record in the league since Christmas, uh, dropping from sixth place to 17th. Uh, your initial thoughts, George? It's something that we've chatted a little bit about over the last few weeks anyway. I mean, it, it's not a surprise. I think we had thought it was probably going to happen last week. Uh, I don't think anyone in their right mind can argue um, that, it was, that it's been the wrong decision. 
I think you could probably argue that it wasn't necessarily the wrong appointment. I think there was a lot of evidence at the time of the appointment was made um, that Critchley was hot property when it came to um, championship management. He was probably the likely person to get the next good gig going. Uh, he came into a club where expectations had massively spiked from pre-season because of the work that Mick Beale had done. And as I said the other day in the midweek podcast, it's important to remember that this wasn't... Critchley came in and immediately QPR went on a slide. The slide had already begun. The rot had already set in when before Beale had left. The last couple of, of weeks under Beale hadn't been particularly good. Um, do I think they've made the right decision to sack him? It's, it's hard to say. I personally, and I know the QPR fans would disagree, I reckon he probably would have would have kept them up is the big question. I think long term, he would be someone who would, once he's got the bodies in that suit the style of play that he wants, would have a decent impact on on a side. You know, it took time at Blackpool for things to go his way. They had a terrible start to the season in League One. Um, but I guess the crux of it is that if, if Neil Critchley had had a middling to poor start, say that they had won, or won three or four of the 12 games, only picking up 12, 15 points, that would have them still cosily in mid-table, miles away from the relegation zone. I don't think anyone could have anticipated quite how badly this could have gone in terms of pure points. And so suddenly QPR have gone from appointing a manager with like, okay, I reckon the message was probably if we get into the playoffs, brilliant. If we don't, don't worry about it. We'll build for next season. To suddenly, if we don't do something about this, there's a chance that we're going to be embroiled in a relegation battle. And so therefore, it doesn't really matter that um, Critchley may long-term have been a decent appointment for QPR because if the benefit came when they're in League One, and realistically he wouldn't have had the opportunity to manage them in League One anyway, then a change has to be made. And it's the, the classic case of, well, you can't sack the players, you can't sack the fans, you can't change the club. Who's the person? What's the one tangible thing you can change? It is, of course, the manager. And there's no denying that a fair amount of the responsibility for the poor run of form has to lie with Critchley. Now, what I would say, it sound a bit like a broken record, is that I think the, the, the appointment itself wasn't particularly well thought out. Yes, Critchley was someone who um, would have interested any championship side at the time. And it was, it was an easy person to go to after him and Gerard leaving Villa. But the style of football, the succession planning didn't really make sense. Beale had recruited for a very specific style of play. Whereas we know with Critchley, pragmatism, efficiency, physicality were much more part of, of what he wanted to do. So making a change mid-season uh, and tearing up basically what you'd built didn't show a particularly wise model in my eyes. And then if you're going to end up with Gareth Ainsworth, who's currently the favourite to take over, you are quite <laughs> over the course of one season and without any more transfer windows to do it, you are steaming through the you know, the scale of, of football philosophies there to start with Beale, to recruit for Michael Beale and then to end up with Gareth Ainsworth doesn't show a great deal of joined up thinking, even though I, I personally think Ainsworth in terms of a, a firefighting mission is would be a, a, a fair way to go. Critchley not able to motivate the squad, I think is an, an obvious one. James Alcott released, uh, released an interesting video on, on the matter on his YouTube channel uh, talking about, you know, his perception being that the players, a lot of the players joined the club in the summer to play for Mick Beale. He's someone who within football and uh, has an unbelievable reputation for coaching players, 
basically coaching them in the way that they all like to be coached, like heavy technical um, focus, uh, loads of creative freedom, all of that stuff. And he's, you know, clearly a very, very good man manager. The players really bought into him. And Critchley clearly, uh, albeit also has a very good reputation for coaching, his style of play and, and presumably therefore his methods in training very different and evidently a very different character as well. And it feels like the players never really bought into Critchley. Now, whether that's his fault or whether you might ask them to be a little bit more professional is a, is a separate question. Overall, this doesn't make me think that Neil Critchley is a bad manager. Clearly, that, that suits me, that serves me because I've been very vocal in how much how good I think he is and has been over the last few years before this time at QPR. But just generally, like, in my own personal rating system for managers, which is probably very different to everyone else's. And also, by the way, it's a very muddled and confused rating system because seven years into doing talking about 25 managerial sackings a season, I still don't have a very good grasp on hiring and sacking managers and what's good and what's bad and why things work and why things don't work. But I, I do put more weight into periods of success over a long period of time versus short-term disastrous periods and disastrous runs. Like, if the knock on Critchley is in 12 league games, he couldn't get a grip on a team who had just been ditched by their manager in pretty traumatic circumstances who had a, a squad with a lot of technical talent built for the previous manager, but who clearly do not have the strongest off-ball or physical traits, and that was proven under Beal and it's proven under Critchley, then that's fine. That's the knock on Critchley. There's loads of managers for whom that would be the case. If he can get a job at the end of this season, before the start of next season, and have a summer on the training pitch to establish a playing style, to start shaping a squad, I'd still back him to do a good job next time rather than a bad one, even though this has gone badly. No doubt for Critchley, it's been a very, very bad year. Leaving Blackpool for Villa, losing that Villa job pretty quickly and, and in doing so, getting a little bit of the blame as well. Uh, then moving to QPR to replace Beal for a second time and now he's out of work after just uh, a couple of months. On to Ainsworth, George. He's a pretty strong favourite as we record. The Sky Sports News have reported that he is talking to QPR, so it's it, it doesn't seem like the... John, John Percy's just tweeted saying that QPR have made their approach for Wickham manager Gareth Ainsworth right. are in talks, so you'd think that's probably that. Yeah, the crucial thing to say is it doesn't just seem like the classic install the club legend as favourite talk. There's a little bit more to it. Um, one of the other things I took away from James Alcott's video was his, his talk about the DNA, if you like, of a successful QPR manager has been one with a lot of charisma, personality, not so much like football-specific stuff, but purely like management-style things, right? Um, Ian Holloway, Neil Warnock, um, some, of the, some of the older managers as well. That seems to, to James Alcott, and therefore I dare say to a lot of other QPR fans, to be quite an important thing for their manager to have, maybe more so than, than other sets of fans, although although all clubs kind of have their little, little bits of DNA, don't they? Um, you don't get much more energy and charisma than Gareth Ainsworth. So on that front, you can see why I'd be a heavy favourite. There'll be lots of people wondering, George, about style of play, something that we've always talked about with Ainsworth. But I know you are keen to put some points across on this front uh, and say why, as you alluded to, you think this would be a, a decent appointment for them. Yeah, I do think it would be a decent appointment. As I say, I think there is there are some issues in terms of, of long-term succession planning. But um, I think QPR are quite fortunate that one of their kind of hero ex-players who's got a good relationship with the fans just happens to be one of the best managers currently operating in the EFL that hasn't had an opportunity. Well, I mean, he, he had a season, of course, with Wickham, but in terms of hasn't taken a, a job higher up the pyramid from the one he's currently in. Um, I think if you're looking at 
the two managers who've done the best jobs at one club over the course of the last 10 years or so. You're looking at Nathan Jones and Gareth Ainsworth. And I think especially, you know, conversing with Luton fans off the back of Jones's departure from Southampton. Um, you know, there's an argument probably that Gareth Ainsworth has had more agency over the job that he's done at Wickham than maybe Jones, um, who's more a, a cog in a machine at Luton. So... I think in that respect, it's very positive. I'm always amazed and very surprised by how, how little respect Ainsworth seems to get from, from other fan bases. The idea that he's something of, of a novelty when actually he um, took over Wickham when they were a struggling League Two club, took them all the way to the championship. There's massive revisionism over their qualification into um, the playoffs in League One, I think peddled quite heavily by disgruntled people involved at Peterborough. Um, around the points per game, the messaging seemed to be that Wickham were, were destined to fall away from their position, even though I think they'd won three of their last five going in before the COVID break. Um, and then, you know, on merit, they won in, in the playoffs to get themselves up. Uh, and even though they, they ended up getting relegated out of the championship, they ended up being a point off safety. And over the course of the season, it wasn't just fans claiming bias they were unquestionably incredibly unlucky with a number of very important decisions in their stay in the championship and then again this season they've rebuilt again in terms of style there's there's no denying that the ascent from league two up into the championship the architect in that was Ainsworth and the building blocks were attritional football you know it was it was caveman football basically it was let's get it long get it into Akinfenua at times or whoever the big man up front was, be incredibly solid with with Darius Charles and Anthony Stewart at centre-back, be the best set-piece team in the league and have someone in Joe Jacobson who you can rely on, not only to deliver brilliant deliveries from wides, um, from corners and free kicks, but to score free kicks, to score corners <laughs> uh, and also to score penalties as well. You know, eking every inch of talent they had out of that side. But I think we've seen a shift in the last two years where... The, you know, the, the takeover from the Kuigs coupled with um, the promotion into the championship and, and the, the revenue that that brought meant that we've seen more technically gifted players brought in and given more creative responsibility, whether that is Anis Mametti, who we know is an elite dribbler, a scorer of great goals, someone who's now moved on to Bristol City, Gareth McCleary, you know, a, a player who is incredibly silky on the ball, another player who scores great goals. Sam Vokes, a massive step up in terms of the target man striker they usually have, who's more than just someone who can make the ball stick up front. Lewis, even Lewis Wing, you know, someone who, again, is given licence to get forward, take shots wherever possible. Um, and I think the football has been better for it. It's not as attritional as it used to be. They play through the lines a lot more. Um, yes, they concede more goals. But I think we've already seen here that Gareth Ainsworth is adept at creating a an effective side that isn't just being solid at the back, getting the ball long, looking to turn defence wherever possible if they're playing a high line or look to, get, to stick it up top and get balls into the box in the final third. I think we're now seeing an evolvement of that. Whether he's able, I mean, what he looks to do at QPR, you know, a QPR side that the best players, well, the best player is about five foot two in Ilias chair. Um, you've got Willock, Lowe, you know, you've got players basically who I don't think would necessarily fit what we've seen in the past from, from Wickham. I think the, the, the crucial part for me is is the man management side of things. And I don't think there could possibly be a better person to come in, regardless of the fact that he's got 
such a high um, standing within QPR, just to come in and just breathe some life into the club. His positivity, his attitude going into the dressing room, the way he'll talk to fans should just really arrest a slide before actually doing any work on the tra- on the training pitch. And I think that's basically what, what QPR needs. You know, Critchley is, is an understated manager, always feels like a slightly reluctant manager, whereas with Ainsworth, you've got somebody who is front and centre, who is the complete embodiment of the club and, and the way that his teams look to play. Yeah, I, I definitely think that his character and personality will count for a lot in the next few months. And if the only important thing is, oh my God, are we are we going to get relegated? Surely not. Well, no, I don't think with Ainsworth in charge that there's a huge amount of um, chance of that. That character and personality, for some managers, they say the right things early on. They are well advised on the right way of going about things to look way better than their predecessor, who's probably left with the fans not liking him very much. And that you can do a really good job just in terms of like warming up the fan base um, in, in a couple of months. But he's not a novelty. And we've seen that his character and personality has maintained its efficiency as a motivator for years and years and years and years and years now and that is an unbelievable skill and I think I I see no reason why that wouldn't continue to be the case particularly going into a club where which he loves and where he is loved so I'm really positive on that front playing style I'm just fascinated I agree with you that Wickham's style of play looks different to three years ago or two years ago in the championship it is still very direct by every single possible measure and we can literally measure direct play and they are incredibly direct um only 28 sequences of 10 passes or more in in uh, in open play um is basically the lowest well certainly in the championship and league one by a significant margin so they get the ball forward quickly they go back to front quickly so it'll just be interesting to see how that works because qpr they just don't have the squad to do that well, they certainly don't have the final third players to do that. Um, Lyndon Dykes in particular, who is currently recovering from quite a serious illness and therefore I don't think is around. I have no idea who their target is going to be if they want to have someone up there to, to pump long balls to when necessary. So be very, very interesting. You know, the other thing is out of possession, they've been unbelievably good. They've been at times very aggressive out of possession, but also very, very comfortable sitting in and just defending their own box and defending deep like they did on the weekend in their win against Bolton for the last half an hour or so. This is a QPR squad that have not proven themselves to be good at being particularly strong and sturdy out of possession with it with a strong backbone um, to be seriously aggressive out of possession. Not really shown that much quality on that front as well. So there are definitely some things that I'm pretty interested in when it comes to style of play. And as you alluded to on paper, Warburton to Beale to Critchley to Ainsworth pretty bonkers in isolation just in the space of like uh, what nine months or so so I'm looking forward to seeing how it looks and I'm excited if he does get this opportunity we both very strongly feel that someone of his uh, of his success should get these opportunities and they are and they're basically harshly done by because of questions about style of play and pausery and time wasting and things like that serves against him so even just as a pure experiment I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes so QPR have become the fourth championship club to make a second managerial change this season after Cardiff and Wigan and Huddersfield Town. Now, clearly, QPR are not in the same bucket as those teams. Their first managerial change was not by choice. It was forced upon them by Beale's uh, departure. It's 18 managerial changes in total since the first ball was kicked in the championship this season. There's, There's quite clearly an issue here between... The expectations 
of a manager's impact on a football team and what a manager is actually able to do in two-thirds of cases. The stats make that objectively true if you are sacking managers at this rate. It's become so easy to sack a manager. And, and not all of the 12 sacked managers are bad managers. In fact, if you ask the same people that sacked them on the day of their hiring what they thought of them, they would wax lyrical about them. They would say, we've referenced every possible uh, thing about this. We've recruited perfectly. We're really happy with our process and we've ended up with the right person and we think he's good at this, this, this and this and that's exactly what we need. So how do you explain that so many of them quote-unquote fail and get sacked within a matter of weeks, months, whatever it might be? If you look at each case in isolation, many of these cases are like hard to argue with, right? You said it yourself about Critchley at the top. It's hard to argue with it. They were terrible. They've slid from 6th to 17th. It's not working. He hasn't got a good grip on the team. How have we got to this point, basically, where almost every club says they have a plan, they know what they want, they know how to get it done, they know how to recruit managers and players, etc., etc. But how many clubs actually are doing that consistently for more than two seasons at a time? It's absolutely insane. I think with the Championship, basically most clubs fall into three buckets You've got, well, probably even uh, three buckets, let's say. You've got the, the teams who were relegated last season from the Premier League. So in this case, Watford, Norwich and, and Burnley. Two of those clubs sat the managers early on. I think the reason for that, well, part, I mean, Watford's a case unto itself. But the reason for that is that there's there's really no excuse given the parachute, you know, given the, the disparity of funds between those teams and the rest of the championship for you not to be challenging for the top two positions for pretty much the whole season. You know, it's... Burnley are an example of doing it right and they're 11 points clear at the top of the champion, championship. So, you know, I, I think it's understandable uh, to judge those managers pretty harshly and I think teams who come down from the Premier League are generally pretty badly run. So it's not a massive surprise that, you know, that they haven't made the, the right appointment coming down. You've then got the, the clubs who still have parachute payments coming in or have some of the highest budgets in the division. So looking at, at West Brom here uh, as an example... Um, where expectations, again, are pretty high. And if you fall short of that, then you're going to end up getting sacked. And, and I think, again, that's not massively surprising to see teams with a top six, seven budget um, getting sacked when they're in, in, the, in the lower regions of the league. And, and I don't think we can argue with that. The issue falls with the rest of the division, where going into the championship season consistently, you know, we had Reading in our, in our, in our relegation spots this season in our one to 24s. They were bookmakers favorites for relegation that a transfer embargo, everything off the pitch pointed at them having a difficult season. And even then we had loads of Reading fans getting in touch with us being like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is rubbish. Like the squad is easily good enough. And you know, to be fair at this stage, they are right that they look like they're not going to go down, even though things are getting a bit perilous. But that is an example where it shows you that going into every season, especially in the championship, despite there being a massive gap in terms of revenue between the top six and seven, eight clubs and the rest, the expectation for these clubs who have the smallest budgets is still to punch way above their weight. So suddenly you've got a bunch of clubs who don't think they should be relegated, don't think they have a squad that is destined for relegation battle when there are seven positions in the league that have to be occupied by clubs within a relegation battle. And naturally, that is going to create 
an environment and a culture where managers are going to lose their jobs consistently because that was, that's what has to change. The key difference between League One and League Two is that there, I think, is an understanding in those leagues. Whereas in the, uh, uh, there's an understanding in those leagues that there is a ceiling on what you can achieve, yet the disparity between budgets is smaller. I mean, in League One, maybe not because there are two or three clubs, Wednesday and Ipswich, who are above the rest. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's a ridiculous environment to have to work in if you're a manager of those clubs towards the bottom end. You know, if you look at, at Preston now, a club who have a bottom six budget, are currently mid-table, and yet the overwhelming idea is that is that Ryan Lowe sh- should be sacked to make it 19. Because there's nothing else, you know, there's, there's no way to... to you know, there's no middle ground in terms of, right, right, we are doing okay. So therefore, things are all right. They're a bit boring. The football isn't great, but the manager shouldn't get sacked. There's no okay. We need more okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's 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 something that I just really don't like about the championship. I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, and this is not specific to Neil Critchley and QPR, but 10 to 12 games for a manager hired after the season had started, for it to be accepted that that's enough time to be like, yeah, no, come on, next one, come on, let's let's twist again. That that seems pretty mad. Like being hired mid-season in the championship, if the schedule is heavy as it almost always is, two months in charge could be ten to twelve games. That might be like forty training sessions maximum if there's loads of matches going on, and m- most of that, more than half of that, probably on recovery. And set pieces. Like, anyway, uh, let's move on to some football. Millwall 3, Sheffield United 2, George. was a fantastic lunchtime game, which really ebbed and flowed. And Millwall very, very strong in the first half in particular. Sheffield United staying with them thanks to a a long-range Doyle free kick. But this one was all about Tom Bradshaw, who put Millwall ahead once, twice, three times, uh, and they ended up winning this game 3-2, and and I think deservedly so, really. Um, This time last week, it was a 10-point gap between Sheffield United and Borough. When we last spoke on the Monday pod, it's now four points, although Sheffield United do have a game in hand. It's a week off for Sheffield United to lick their wounds. They need to regain composure, I think, and make sure that they're at it on Saturday uh, against Watford. But for Millwall... It's 10 wins in their last 20 games with six draws and four defeats. They're in great shape at the moment and they are currently in those playoff positions and look pretty sturdy. I think we both agreed in our mid-season predictions. They just seemed like a team that you could trust to put together a, a, a certain performance level in the second half of the season. And so far they are doing that. As for Bradshaw, the star man, how's this for a quirk, George? He's only scored in five of 26 league appearances this season, which doesn't seem like a very good record. But because it's two hat-tricks in that time and a brace as well, 10 goals in 26 looks a little bit more uh, acceptable. It was an amazing display of finishing, particularly the header for the second goal. Uh, I'm going to be at the Den tomorrow to see if Millwall can do the same against Burnley, uh, the other team in the top two. George, who went to Luton Town and won again. Yeah, not a vintage performance at all, was it, from Burnley, um, who... Yeah, I think Rob Edwards kind of summed it up well, where he was obviously disappointed by the result, but but said that he was incredibly proud of his side for for basically stopping the best team in the league from playing their game. Um, the win came from a penalty that I think was the correct decision. I, I know it must be frustrating for Luton fans when uh, you know Osho certainly isn't intending to play the ball, but you can't deny that his arm was in a 
a unnatural position and Vitinho is it's a brilliant touch that's going to set the ball onto his right hand side and uh, the ball strikes Osho's arm and, uh, and it's a penalty I think especially given how well they played to lose the game on basically a, a slice of luck that's gone against them is going to be immensely frustrating and that frustration pulled over with Tom Lockyer getting a booking for dissent before the penalty and then getting a booking for dissent after the penalty um the, the penalty well dispatched by Ashley Barnes um but I think we we learned a fair bit here about Luton uh, in my mind despite the defeat I think we learned that Luton are, are basically the real deal um in my mind in terms of they put in as good a performance as I've seen anyone against against the league leaders we've spoken about how teams look to be almost in awe of Burnley I think Luton did a better job against them than we saw Watford despite Watford getting a point from that game um, they prevented them from creating much an open play they didn't have them let them have great, great possession um, they were just unable to take the better chances with Elijah Adebayo missing two in the first half that would have put them ahead so they certainly don't lose anything in defeat um, but for Burnley now, eight, 11 points clear. I mean, any hopes we had of a, of a title race, I think, uh, are, are quite quickly fizzling away. Although for the neutral, I guess having a race for seconds is probably more enjoyable anyway. Yeah, looking forward to seeing these clarets in the flesh on Tuesday night. Um, next up, we're going towards the bottom of the championship where there were some pretty significant results. Uh, and George, I just want to take you back, actually, to the 18th of April, 1992. Now, you might remember it. I can't. No, I was one and a half. Yeah, well, depends how good your memory is. Some kids are absolute freaks like that. <laughs> uh, I I've physically can't remember it. Not alive at that point. Not yet. Almost, but not yet. I want to take you to the Football League Second Division, uh, which was just months away from being called the Football League First Division uh, and is now called the Championship. Uh, Mick McCarthy's Millwall team travelled to St James's Park and beat Newcastle 1-0. It was a, a ball from McGinley over the top to Allen. Finished 1-0 win for Millwall up at Newcastle. It was four defeats in a row for Newcastle, uh, who would narrowly avoid relegation that season, but then would romp to the title next season. Now, that wasn't, George, Mick McCarthy's first win as a manager. It was his third after taking over from Bruce Rioch a month before. But the significance of that win comes when I tell you about a game that day in the first division, soon to, soon to be rebranded the Premiership, where at Carrow Road, Norwich lost 1-0 to Notts County, a late winner from Rob Edwards. And who was manager of Notts County that day? Neil Warnock. That was the first day, George Ellick, that Mick McCarthy and Neil Warnock both managed a football team to victory. Wow. Ten years apart in age, McCarthy had cleaned Warnock's boots when he was a youth player at Barnsley. They have been intrinsically linked for many, 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 many decades. Between them, they have managed well over 2,500 league matches. And on Saturday, the 18th of February, 2023, 30 years and 10 months after they both managed a team to victory... For the first time, they both managed to team to victory once again. <laughs> They're still going, George. They've literally been doing it for longer than I've been alive. Huddersfield 2, Birmingham 1, Blackpool 1, Stoke City 0. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. You and I actually sat in our office on Wednesday night um, before recording the, um, the midweek YouTube show. And we said we should probably have a, a little bet on both Warnock and, and McCarthy um, both winning their game. They both lost. And then we realised during the game that it actually wasn't Warnock's first game. Did either of us do it on Saturday? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, incredible stuff. Um, and two seismic wins, you have to say, in, in the whole outlook of the relegation zone now um, with Huddersfield and, and Blackpool 
both still in, in the relegation zone, but now just two points off Rotherham after their defeat. Um, what did we learn? I mean, we learned that Joseph Hungbo is, is is pretty good at football, I would say. Um, I'll take the Huddersfield game first. Uh, Troy Deeney putting Birmingham ahead. Hungbo scoring a brilliant goal set up by Jaheim Headley, who made his first start in midweek, brought into the fold by, um, you'd think, the caretaker manager, or maybe Neil Warnock. Um, and then Headley racing down the left-hand side to score uh, the goal to put them 2-1 up. And, you know, Birmingham... Definitely put the pressure on. Deeney missed a couple of really good opportunities, hitting the woodwork as well. But, uh, you know, this was classic Neil Warnock. And you could see after um, after the game in his interview that he was pretty emotional. Um, you know, he felt like he'd got everything he needed out of his players. There was certainly a, a, a jump in performance level, even for midweek. Um, so, you know, as I've said before, Neil Warnock certainly doesn't guarantee you survival but he's made a pretty good start of um, of trying to achieve it. The cult of Warnock is absolutely incredible. And, you know, there are days where I'm feeling cynical, where I kind of roll my eyes at it a little bit. And then there are days where I'm not feeling cynical, where I just fully buy into it. Like, there's a banner in uh, in the Huddersfield fans, George, that said, you've got to effing die to get three points. Like, it's just so perfect. And it, it also, I also just find it fascinating that... Well, firstly, a question to you and and the listeners. Like 20 years ago, when Warnock was well-established and managing top of the championship a couple of times in the Premier League as well, did everyone love him to this extent? Or has it come with time and age and becoming basically the grandfather of, of the EFL, the grandfather of English football? And I think there's a big like social media aspect of this as well. For someone who probably is the type who doesn't, go on social media that much i know he's got a twitter account i don't believe he writes many of those tweets himself although i'm 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 pleased to be proven wrong i really think social media has played a huge part in the cult of warnock Uh, and i suppose not quite specific to social media but the documentary which has spawned so many viral clips that are still used today plus that weird squaring up to the camera when he was cardiff manager um, in the premier league which is such a, a famous gif a little bit like mick mccarthy's um, careless whisper uh, eyebrow raise gif i know it sounds ridiculous and I'm, I'm you know i'm probably going over the top but i do think these things have had a really positive impact on neil warnock and and the cult of warnock which is which which helps him to create this incredible positive atmosphere which is now being felt at uh, at huddersfield town um headley was fantastic magnificent um the fact that Bilokopic got the assist the goalkeeper for headley to score the winner i mean it's just crazy if you add up huddersfield's squad numbers from saturday it, it just shows how insane their team is and how unbelievably like ugly their squad building has been in the last nine months as for Blackpool one Stoke City nil this is what a first win in two and a half months sounds like Credit to Blackpool FC there and a thanks to It's Not Orange, It's Tangerine for sending that over as part of Not The Top content on Sunday. Really pleasing to get some some really good clips sent over and shared, which improved my Sunday. It was a heavily deflected Pervader strike that put them ahead and then a McCarthy classic, really, a Stoke 
after the goal had 23 shots to four, but 80% of them were blocked or missed the target. A small bone, probably the biggest culprit of of, of missing a, a presentable chance. But for the most part, Blackpool defended their lead well, um, definitely benefited from playing a Stoke team that seems to have had its soul sucked out of it. Um, one of the teams with the least amount of positive energy that I can think of in the whole EFL at the moment. And I think that helps if you can get ahead against them. Um, and as for Blackpool, it's, it's Blackburn and Reading away next. I sort of think those fixtures and even being away from home could suit Blackpool under McCarthy. A real chance for them in the next week after two and a half months without a win. Uh, down at the bottom, another win, George, for Cardiff. Made it a really good week for them. Back-to-back wins uh, in a week. Things looking a lot rosier under Sabri Lamucci, and we've been huge Remainers ever since uh, Sawyer's <laughs> Walsall days. Yeah, brilliant hit from Sawyer's to win the game. Um the kind of strike that you'd expect Romain Sawyers to, you know, to pull off like a caressed ball kissing off the turf a couple of times for nestling in the bottom right-hand corner, despite not really being hit at much pace. Um, just a, a beautiful player. Um, Reading fans will, you know, want us to point out that Mark McGuinness should have been sent off in this one. No denying that at all. Um, a, a dangerous tackle where he was out of control. And I think um, you know, Paul Lintz has every right to feel aggrieved at that. Having said that, they were atrocious in the game. Um, it's Reading's performances away from home. Um, it's like they're in their own head. They they just can't seem to get out. They can't seem to create much. They just um, are a different side away from the Medeski. And Cardiff would have felt incredibly frustrated had they not been able to find the breakthrough because they were the better side in every single part of the pitch. Um, so, yeah, a big win for Lamucci. It does feel like all those sides towards the bottom end of the championship who've made their manager change now are, are getting better or at least getting the points that they need um, to really open it up. And that is bad news for, for those who maybe made their um, managerial changes a little bit earlier in the season, um, such as as certainly Rotherham. And, and you've even got to look now at Stoke and wonder if they're going to get sucked into things the way things are going with, with the teams behind um, picking up points the way that they are. Yeah, miserable week for Rotherham, I'm afraid, off the back of those three uh, relegation rivals wins. They're all chasing down uh, the Millers and losing at home to Coventry ended a, a very, very poor week for them. Uh, goal disallowed early on here, Hugh Gill scoring it. Very hard to see much of an infringement. Ridiculous uh, decision. Okay, yeah, that's what I was saying, but sort of times by 10. You're very <laughs> a la mode with that, no, well done. Just... Um yeah, hard to see much of an infringement there. Um, and that, I think, took a bit of wind out of some sails that, that had a fair amount of wind in them, to be fair. Coventry, uh, rather, Rotherham, rather, starting this game pretty well. And the first half was very competitive. Uh, but Coventry easing clear in the second half. Um, as always, any moments of transition are just made 10 times more dangerous by Victor Jokeresh. Uh, the first goal wasn't set up or scored by him. It was scored by Allen. Uh, but then Gjok had a few... Uh, a few where he went it alone, uh, eventually scoring the second goal. Uh, I can't quite work out how good Coventry are. I don't know if you feel the same, but I mean, I suppose that's probably why they're bang in the middle of the seeded batch. But you're always quite keen to know if a team's like average to good or average to poor or just average. And I think I, I just don't know exactly where Cov are on that scale at the moment. Um, Blackburn won Swansea nil. Very little in the game. Not a classic, I don't think. Very few clear-cut opportunities. Uh, and in the end, it was an 89th-minute winner from Ayala. Swans not dealing with the second phase of a set-piece, which I feel like happens every other game. They've conceded the most set-piece goals in the division. Very valuable win for Blackburn, who is still level on points with the playoff places, uh, with Sunderland and Millwall on 49. George, 
Sunderland won, Bristol City won. Pen. They won a pen. 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 And I'm delighted, you know, when I said earlier about how I was backing Naki Wells for top goal scorer because he might take a pen. He did take a pen just six months later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost would have preferred if it was like mm, like a ridiculous decision that should never have been given. Uh, that would have felt more apt if it had been not an obvious pen. But Hume kind of tripping over and then bringing Wells down meant that it uh, it was pretty... Pretty undeniable. Uh, that referee obviously nodded off, George, at the end of the last PGMOL meeting where they went through their these are the teams we're biased against checklist. Um, so he'll probably be struck off after that Bristol City penalty. Uh, but on a more positive and less snide note, uh, Anis Mometi making a great first impression with Bristol City fans uh, with his performance in midweek and again here where he was really dangerous. Seems to be very happy stepping back up to the championship. Uh, and Jack Clark has had himself a week for Sunderland with three uh, goals. This one, the best of the lot, an absolute howitzer from Clark having cut inside his defender. 2 0 nils, Wigan nil, Norwich nil. Big chances in the first half for Wigan, uh, for Lang, and then at least one for Will Keane as well, not taken, squandered, and the game rather petered out in the second half. Uh, it's a third clean sheet in four games for Sean Maloney and Wigan, so they can be feeling pretty positive after that. Six points in four games has given them a chance, and Hull nil, Preston nil uh, was a match that happened in and indeed around the Humber. Watford v West Brom is the live Sky game on Monday night. Uh, George, how about League Two? At the top of it. League two. We're going to skip League one. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. League one. Sheffield Wednesday five. MK Dons two. Bet you didn't see MK going one nil up. Bet you didn't see MK going two one up. Didn't matter. Great goal from Jonathan Lecco. Hard to think mm. of many great goals that come within uh, thrashing and end up being fairly relevant um but yeah brilliant hit from him and he look, he's looked lively since he came in uh, i think as he often does i mean the end product isn't, isn't necessarily always there but it was certainly there on saturday um but yeah mk were even for their 2-1 lead um were, were completely outclassed by wednesday uh, in this one um who were just relentless in terms of, of what you know, i think even when they went 2-1 down everyone was pretty confident that, that they would come back and win it um they're very quickly solidifying their status as champions elect in my book um their runner form is is so impressive that the only thing i guess people can hold on to is that is that they haven't had a, a real dip yet and maybe that's still to come um if if you know things like every team has a dip uh, is actually true I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure that it is um lee gregory getting back in the goal is impressive barry bannon pulling the strings in the, in the middle of the park you know they were at home to one of the poorer teams in the division as, as i've said I, i'm still fairly comfortable in my uh, assessment that despite a couple of decent results I think MK are actually worse now than they were when they when they sat Liam Manning personally um, it looks to me like they've lost a lot of their identity in an attempt to try and become more solid but they offer very little going forward uh, apart from a decent first half display against a very poor Oxford side um, which ages pretty badly as, as weeks go on um, they look pretty devoid of ideas to me and, and haven't really tightened up defensively at all. I think MK, unless they turn things around, are going to get relegated. Um, but for Sheffield Wednesday to you know to, to do it in the manner they've done it is, yeah, I mean it's it's going to take a lot to chase them down now, and I, I think it's 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 in the position now where it's in their own hands. You often talk about an underdog scoring too early. You you very rarely talk about an underdog scoring too too early. Um, but that's basically what happened here. The the MK goals as impressive as they were, basically had the effect of 
like pulling the whiskers of a huge and hungry lion, uh, which is well probably more apt would be like tweaking the beak of an angry owl. Uh, anyway, the the Darren Moore masterclass continues. If if we allow him a couple of months at the start of last season where they didn't start very quickly, and if we accept that it's quite difficult sometimes being relegated in circumstances such as they got relegated with, uh, I think it's fair to say some some issues off the pitch if we allow him a couple of months where things were probably quite difficult for him to to settle down the record is just unbelievable basically from from like mid-jan onwards so the last 13 months or so uh it's 116 points in their last 53 uh league games that's not including the playoffs that's around 2.2 points per game it's it's absolutely immense it ends in promotion i've got little doubt about that it's a masterclass in man management which is what Moore has always been credited for being very, very good at particularly, but also tactically in building a style and a system that works for his squad, but also that works for all occasions. We've spoken a bit in the last couple of months about team style and those particularly the teams that are really extreme in possession uh, in their sort of fairly slow possession and build up and and the sort of issues that they um, come up against. Sheffield Wednesday have that kind of mixed style that we spoke about a few weeks back, which, when done well, seems to be um, potentially the way to go in the champ in in the EFL at the moment. In that, yes, they do dominate the ball in most of their games, and most teams do sit in and and try and defend deep defend for their lives. But Wednesday have the physical strength to dominate the box if they do need to sling in crosses, which a lot of teams of high possession ilk don't tend to have. They get goals from their strikers, from their midfielders, from their wingbacks as well. They get tons of attacking output. And it's a style that I think suits itself to broadly any opposition in League One. And it's allowed them to build this great consistency, this great momentum, if you prefer, that those Outside centre-backs as well, I want to, to mention. Rhys James with a beautiful assist to uh, Windass for the first Wednesday goal on their Instagram account. They've got a reel from a reverse angle, which makes Rhys James's park just look so sensational. And Liam Palmer's been excellent as well in the outside centre-back role on the right side. And when you've got players like that who are basically full-backs playing now in outside CB positions, when you've got wing-backs as well who are very high and wide, when you build up, when you attack you have a fullback and a winger, basically, in like the sort of old school style. But where in the old school style, that meant having only two centre midfielders and two up top because you're playing 4-4-2. Now you have the three central midfielders as well as the two up top. So it's no surprise that this is still such a popular formation and one that works very well for certain teams. Um, And it's just kind of weird that their defence has not been very settled at all and yet very, very high performing. And I guess that comes back to more and building a a structure that works for a number of players like Palmer and Marvin Johnson are the only players of the back five to have started more than 18 games. So only they're the only players that have started more than about 60% of the games. Um, And yet the team has stayed pretty sturdy and solid throughout. Uh, And then last word for George Byers, who scored the fifth. 0.59 0.59 goals and assists per 90 from centre midfield is uh, pretty eye-catching numbers. Ipswich followed them in with a 4-0 win at home to Forest Green. George, this one was attack v defence uh, and Ipswich extended their record of, of pumping the teams in the bottom four at Portman Road. 4-0, 4-0, 3-0 and 3-0. Um, it's not hugely surprising. It is a, quite impressive, but we're kind of expecting more from them in other fixtures and they've got a lot to prove at this point. But good performances from Davis at left wing back from Broadhead with a nice assist. Uh, Chaplin in the goals again. Their next games, Ipswich, are against MK, then Burton, then Accrington. 
So they will be overwhelming favourites to win all three. And if they do, they'll be on 69 points after 35, which would be a nice points tally, but still only one more than what Argyle and Wednesday have now. So you feel like they need to win those three games to stay in touch. And frankly, it should happen with this starting 11 from this game. It's just ridiculous. The bench as well. The attacking options are just ridiculous. They have to make this what we see over the next few weeks as well. Uh, and Argyle nil, Fleetwood nil. Argyle dropping points at home will be disappointing. Uh, they had the better chances, albeit they, they weren't quite purring and Fleetwood defending very, very well in this game. I noted that our one of our favourite players from League 2, who's now in League 1, Brendan Sarpong Wiredu, is now playing centre-back for Fleetwood, uh, which is... Yeah, quite interesting, quite an interesting option for his development. He's played like five five times in the back three uh, in the last few weeks. Okay, George, playoff chasers or playoff dwellers. Let's go. Wickham one, Bolton nil. Five wins in a row for Wickham. Yeah, I feel like we've already spoken about Wickham earlier. Um, one of the players I mentioned, Lewis Wing, set up by another one of the players we mentioned, um, Gareth McCleary. Uh, pretty feisty affair this one um, with Bolton. Yeah. You know, Bolton have been in such good form coming into it. I don't think they were necessarily poor here. They just weren't able to finish the chances that, that they were able to create. Um, I think they should have had a penalty. I don't know what your point of view was. I think David Wheeler, um, quite clearly, it's basically a push with no intention to play the ball. And it might look fairly soft, but you, you just can't really do that. I think if you're going through the man and you're getting your head on it, then that's one thing. I think if you're going through the man and then basically turning around to chase the ball, that's another thing. Um Ian Everett not happy at the full-time whistle with with, uh, with the refereeing and the officiating. Um, but, you know, it was a game where I think either side basically could have won it. Chances of plenty either end. Um, wing, wing's goal proving the difference. And it's a pretty big goal, you have to say, in terms of the, the League One um, playoff race. You know, I said to you last week, is the top six the top six? And we said, probably. But Wickham picking up points, chasing three points back from Bolton, who before this game with a win could have put the pressure on uh, Plymouth Argyle, certainly brings them into the fold. You know, there's now a five-point gap between Wickham and Shrewsbury. I'm going to say right now it's going to be six of the seven. Um, but I think Wickham, with that result and their current run of form, um, what's going to happen with Gareth Ainsworth obviously has a big impact on that. But from where we're sitting now, before Ainsworth moves on, um, they've, they've given themselves a chance. Yeah, let's talk next steps for Wickham next time out. Um, it was a good win for them, seven wins in ten. Uh, another Lewis Wing screamer, which is always great fun. Uh, and it was Tough Sheet for Bolton. George, that's the name of their new stadium. Or not their new stadium. That's the name of their current stadium for the next five seasons. The, the Tough Sheet. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Cheltenham nil, Barnsley 4. Mike Duff back at Cheltenham Town. Up against his former assistant, Wade Elliott. And, well, 3-0 up pretty early on here. One brilliant team goal to start with. Big switch from Herbie Kane out to Jordan Williams. Williams inside to Adam Phillips on the edge, and he drew the defence out to him before picking out Norwood to finish. And then it was worldy time. Herbie Kane, take a bow, mm, son. What a hit. My favourite piece of Not The Top content all weekend. Credit to Jack Buchanan. Listen to the noise of the Cheltenham fans when this hits the net. Indeed, Cheltenham fans. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, Adam Phillips followed him in with a beautiful free kick and Jordan Williams finished it off. Very comfortable win for Barnsley. Uh, George Derby 2, Charlton 0. Uh, Derby 
uh, after not winning their previous two games, a defeat against Wickham and then a draw at home to Lincoln, uh, pleasing to do the business this time. Yeah, and back to something near their best, I thought. They were um, completely dominant pretty much in every facet of the of the of the play um Charlton weren't really able to to lay too much of a glove on them uh, Derby taking the lead through a, a Dave McGoldrick penalty Owen Cashin scoring the second although I know you think maybe um, it might might have been an own goal um they created loads of chances those are good chances you expected goals was like 2.9 um yeah I'm, I'm a little bit concerned for Charlton and let's talk about Charlton on pitch because you know this was a regulation win for Derby that gets them back on track. I still think they're very much in the in the promotion picture. But for Charlton, you've got the, the takeover having fallen through, which I think Charlton fans are, are basically to a man pretty happy about at this stage. Although I did see after our chat last week, Charlie Methven um, did speak or uh, to Five Live saying that they still had every intention of it going through. So that clearly isn't done. Um, but the performances over the last five or six games is enough to get me quite concerned. Now, Dean Holden's clearly come in and done a very good job immediately at Charlton. There's no denying that. They, I'm not surprised at all. Charlton fans are very keen for Holden to stay. I think in terms of a caretaker profile, Holden's pretty much perfect. He is someone who is eminently positive, incredibly popular, looks to entrust young players, galvanises fan bases, and that is exactly what you want from a short-term fix. But in terms of the way they are trending at the moment, I would have serious concerns about the long-term viability of, of him as head coach at Charlton. And that is because if you look at their last five games, basically, the numbers are like unavoidably troubling and this isn't because you know I've had some stick recently from Argyle fans who seems to think I've got it in for them because I keep talking about how many shots they concede I don't come up with the data I don't you know whenever we're talking about these clubs and, and forms it's our job to flag things that may maybe haven't been spotted before and that is the case in my mind with Charlton here where in the 2-1 defeat against Bolton that we'll go back to. Expected goals was about 3 to 0.8 in, in Bolton's favour. Bolton won that 1-2-1. One, one. In the 2-1 win over Exeter, it was about level, about 1-all between the two teams. In the 2-1 defeat against Fleetwood, again, Fleetwood created about 1.8 to Charlton's 0.9. Even the defeat, sorry, the, the win away at Forest Green, a win at Forest Green, where Forest Green, we have to say, are the worst team in the division. Forest Green, again, created that 1.5 expected goals to, to Charlton's 0.6. Then again, here against Derby, they've been absolutely battered in the game. So apart from basically one game against Exeter, which was a win, and Game State obviously plays a part in, in the Forest Green game as well after they scored early, Charlton are conceding a huge number of chances and good chances in every game they're playing in at the moment. And... With instability off the pitch, I can understand why the fans are keen for Dean Holden to be given the job long term. But we saw a similar trend at Bristol City when he came in, where things started off very well and unraveled very, very quickly. Because I think he is someone whose influence can only be a positive one in terms of his personality type. Whether or not he's the right person to set up this team, I'm seeing some red flags at this stage. Well, just beneath the playoffs, uh, Peterborough went to Morecambe and won 3-0. I was listening to the radio uh, during the Saturday games. 
uh, I was taken to a, a homeware store to buy a, a, I think it was a curtain rail. As you can imagine, I was very into that uh, during the Saturday 3pm games. Uh, but a bit of time on the road meant that I could hear the goals as they as they went in. Uh, and a very uh, well-known Peterborough fan that works on one of the UK's premier sports radio stations uh, was talking about how everyone knew that Posh needed to be more ruthless in front of goal and that they had been exactly that at Morecambe on Saturday. I mean, yeah, I was expecting to see some real ruthlessness in front of goal. What I actually saw was mostly pure luck, I would say. And, you know, that's fine. But we're talking about a long shot from Jack Taylor that would never trouble the goalkeeper looping off ahead and flying in. We're talking about a free kick from Ward straight into the keeper's hands that somehow squirmed through them. And then we're talking about a Kwame Poku shot from 20 yards, heavily deflected away from the goalkeeper and into the corner. Like, I'm being a bit facetious. There's there's no doubt that Posh had the better of the game in the first 30 minutes. They likely deserve to be ahead. But this wasn't ruthlessness. This is just the sort of luck that you sometimes get and that you mostly don't get. So uh, let's see if they get it up against Argyle. That's next up for Posh, then Charlton, then Wednesday. It's not an easy run uh, for Peterborough. They're nine points off the playoffs and I'm I'm not really buying what they're selling at the moment. I expect them to be 10 points or more off the playoffs by 5pm on the 4th of March. That's after the Wednesday game. Let's see how we go. Uh, Accrington beat Shrews. Huge, huge, huge win for them. They scored their one shot on target. What a lovely flick it was from Aaron Presley. And then they just bunkered in uh, and hoped for the best. And uh, and they were rewarded. Uh, Shrews just, just not really at it. They didn't generate uh, quite as much uh, from set pieces as you might have expected or hoped for. Did hit the bar at one point, so it wasn't like they were a million miles away. Uh, but Accrington narrowly winning it. It was kind of important, George, because a few of the other teams down at the bottom winning as well. Uh, how about Burton going to Bristol Rovers and winning... 2-1, Burton beating Barton and their, their winning goal just summing up their season really, just pure chaotic energy. Yeah, Bristol Rovers are in trouble, I think it's fair to say. Why do you keep saying Charlton and Bristol Rovers are in trouble? Like, what? what are you worried about? They're not going to go down. Bristol Rovers not going to go down? No, obviously not. What do you mean? <laughs> well, they're just not. Bristol Rovers, they're, they're like, <laughs> Rovers are like 8-1 for relegation at this stage. Like, why? I mean... I think Bristol Rovers would tell you you're falling into the trap of sleepwalking into relegation. I, I mean, I, yeah, Charlton won't go down, I, I don't think. Bristol Rovers are 100% in danger of getting relegated this season. Like, no question. Their form at the moment is abhorrent. They have a game against Oxford on Saturday where if they lose that game, suddenly they're, the, the distance between them and the bottom four is shrinking basically week on week. The performances have next to no redeeming features to them at all. It's, I mean, I, I think Bristol Rovers fans would agree things are in a pretty like, perilous state right now. I mean, we know with Joey Barton, form lines go up and down in extremes and it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see him take them on a, on a run later on in the campaign to, to see them safe. But at this stage, players like woefully out of form um, at this current stage. Now, Aaron Collins went close at 1-0 here to, to putting them 2-0 up. He's barely had a goal involvement after that hot start at the beginning of the season. Josh Coburn dropped to the bench. John Mark was scoring his first goal in a long time. But Burton, I think they had one shot off the, after that first goal, which was the Collins shot. Burton were the better team by miles. Like Burton created plenty of opportunities with massive value for their three points in, the, in this game. So, yeah, I mean, I completely refute the idea that Brits Rovers are going to be fine. I think it's 
it's a, it's a game on Saturday, basically, in my mind, between two clubs who are probably the two worst teams, along with Accrington in the league right now, um, and the loser of which will be facing up to an incredibly awkward time with fan, you know, the fan base not happy at all about what they're seeing and not happy with them. I mean, Barton obviously has more credit in the bank with, with in terms of his, his what he's done at Bristol Rovers, but um, the atmosphere on, on, on that game is going to be a, a pretty interesting one given the standing of both teams and the form that they're in. Well, a quick one on Burton, who have won four out of five. It's amazing what that'll do. They're now five points clear of the relegation zone. It struck me as you were talking about Bristol Rovers that their season has been like complete roller coaster. I, I remember being highly concerned for Bristol Rovers at one point, and then they then I remember being interested in them potentially disrupting the playoff places. And now here you are saying that they are absolutely mm. a relegation candidate. It's pretty crazy. Burton have had a similar. It's, it's basically, it's, it's one purple patch in the middle, isn't it? Like it's, it's a terrible start, an incredible run, and then, a, and then a, a reversion back to something even worse in the beginning. So if you take the purple patch out. It was pretty purple though. Well, yeah, Burton, what do I want to say about Burton? Mainly the fact that they just seem to have half a new team every time I, I really sit down and take a look at Burton's team. Like every window, they just seem to sign 11 players. I don't really understand how it works, but it does. Um, the, the new gang that are impacting games are Charlie Kirk, Dale Taylor, Zach Ashworth, Jasper Moon all doing good things so far. Um, and they're in, yeah, they're in good shape, I tell you. Um, at the moment, Cambridge 1, Oxford nil. George, this was the classic. Could this be the first time in history that both teams somehow conspire to lose? Um, as it is, it's Oxford United that fall further into the pit of misery. Yeah, another one of those games uh, on Saturday. Um, yeah, it was incredibly bad from Oxford in the first half. Um, Cambridge fully deserving of their three points, scoring from early on from a corner. Oxford didn't have a shot. Um, it had one shot in the first half from Josh Murphy from 30 yards. Didn't have a shot from inside Cambridge's box in the, in the whole game. Um, just a team incapable of creating anything from open play. I think that's one goal in, in their last seven games now, or was it nine games um, from open play, um, which was a Lewis Bate 30-yard goal, which should have been saved. Um, yeah, so no redeeming features here for Oxford. I am pretty surprised that we're not sitting here doing our manager chats about Oxford at the moment, but I think that day will come fairly soon. Um, for Cambridge, you know, Mark Bonner, um, it's a huge win for him. They were better in midweek against Cheltenham. They were better here and, and they got a deserved win. And um, you've got to be over the moon for him because, you know, he's another one under under huge pressure at the moment. Again, a manager with credit in the bank. I think a lot of Cambridge fans had and have turned on him. Um, but I, I a bigger proportion would be delighted if he was to, to, to lead them out of this mess. And um, and there are signs, finally, because it had been a long time coming, that they might be back on the right on the right track. Well, Fleetwood away on Tuesday night for Cambridge United. Could things be looking a little rosier after that, or will they be sent back into the pit of misery? Find out. Uh, we'll be doing uh, midweek recap videos on our YouTube channel, so make sure that you're subscribed uh, to the Not The Top 20 YouTube channel. So a big weekend at the bottom for Cambridge, Accrington and Burton with wins. Uh, therefore, some pretty damaging defeats there as well. Forest Green looking like they're being cut adrift somewhat. Uh, Morecambe, of course, and MK also falling to defeats and Cheltenham as well. Uh, Port Vale beat Exeter 1-0. Quite an ugly game. 
but it was won by one of my favourite footballing things, and that is a centre-back scoring from open play. Uh, there's two ways that this can be done, two ways to skin this cat, uh, either stepping forward and scoring an unlikely worldie, or stepping forward, then stepping forward again, then the ball gets moved out wide, and you think, you know what, why don't I just keep going and see what happens? You get inside the box, the cross comes in, the keeper pushes it away, and there you are, Will Forrester. Well done, son. 1-0. Uh, deserved victory for Vale, albeit helped by a very soft red card for Rekim Harper at 0-0. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, a, a win for Vale. And, you know, what I said last week about Exeter still stands. I don't think we should be rating them as we did uh, in the first half of the season. And Lincoln nil, Portsmouth nil, was actually quite an entertaining game. Would you believe it? But the same result as 12 of 15 Lincoln home games this season. A draw. In League 2... George Leighton Orient beat Crawley 1-0. El Miz with another cracking goal. A bit of a horror goal to concede from Crawley from your own attacking set piece. That's not ideal. Um, Nick, who's an Orient fan on the squad, said, a routine 1-0 win today. I've seen that quite a few times this season. Dominated throughout. Didn't have our shooting boots on. Crawley tried to play some passing football but didn't have the quality. Usually it ended up with their keeper who booted it off. Uh, Craig Clay has been immense since coming into the side, winning tackles and laying it off. The Darren Prattley role. Uh, they needed <coughs> Clay to do that, and he has. This was also Justin Edinburgh Day at Leighton Orient, and I think it's fantastic that they continue to mark uh, an incredible life and also someone who did something pretty amazing for this football club because... When Orient dropped into non-league uh, off the back of the actions and whims of some very, 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 very bad owners, and other words do uh, are available there, uh, everyone knows it's it's not that easy to come back from that. The fact that Orient did um, was hugely down to Justin Edinburgh, and it was nice to see him uh, honoured uh, again by the club. Um, so with a couple of chasers losing, George, it's another step towards League One for Leighton Orient. Let's talk about some of those chasers. Stockport 2, Stevenage nil. Yeah, Stockport back to their best, aren't they, again? Um, yeah, I, I still think in isolation when Stockport... I think when Stockport are at their best, they are the best team in League Two. That isn't to say that Orient aren't the best team in League Two, full stop. But I think that when Stockport hit their you know, hit their stride, there's basically no team in the league that can deal with them. And that was the case here. Like, no shame in Stevenage, I think, by, by being second best. Um, Hippolyte scoring the opener. And then as, as Stevenage kind of pulled men forward, um, Stockport got the second goal to make it 2-0. Fully deserved. Uh, I, I think Stockport are going to finish in the top three. Um, I'm, I'm getting more and more confident of that as the weeks go on. For Stevenage, it's been a combination of, I guess, a difficult run of games they've had. You know, they've gone to Sutton, they've gone to Stockport, two of the hardest places you can go in the league. Um, maybe a little bit of complacency off the back of that three 0 win over Orient, but very quickly they've, they've, you know, lost a lot of ground on, on, on top spot, and they need to be a bit careful because even though they've got games in hand, those aren't points, and if they are to um, continue dropping points in those games at hand, suddenly they're going to be very much a team that can be caught by that group of teams that are, that are waiting beneath them. I think they'll be okay. I think Steve Evans has enough, um, he's long enough in the tooth to be able to um, ensure that when it comes to games they should be winning, they should be able to to do so. Um, but yeah, very much second best in this one. And, and whatever happened at Stockport and that little run where they their performance levels dropped seems to be uh, done with. Some of the longest teeth in the whole EFL, actually, Steve Evans. You're absolutely spot on. Um, Will Collar Will Collar with a goal and assist here makes it 
10 goals and five assists in the last 22 games in all competitions, which for a centre midfielder are just insane goal contributions and unfortunately is catching the eye of many. I say unfortunately um, because Stockport might struggle to keep him this summer based on the, the role that he interprets and how many clubs higher up the levels would love someone like that. However, Stockport obviously in a very strong position financially and if they do make the top three as predicted by George Ellick, uh, then I dare say Collar might want to stick along for the ride. Northampton are, are in a tough spot at the moment and they lost at home to Grimsby to put a little bit of extra pressure on John Brady. The sort of pressure that he won't have felt for some time now. It means that they are now three points outside of the top three where they had kind of positioned themselves for large parts of the season so far. Uh, they have got a game in hand over Carlisle who are three points above them. There's nothing done at this point but certainly a disappointing um, few weeks or so they have only picked up nine points from their last eight games that is not automatic promotion form and they lost at home to Grimsby uh, you kind of expect a thumping header from Waterfall and we got that D don't expect many thumping headers from Driscoll Glennon for the winner he is someone who I think of as having one of the best deliveries from fullback in league two uh, I wasn't expecting him to smash one in with his head from the six-yard box. But really, this was all about a name we haven't spoken about on the pod for years, George, and that is Josh Emmanuel. I had to do a double take. Yeah, yeah, it was weird, because he's wearing number seven as well, wasn't he? Which threw me, because I was like, who's this wearing number seven? And that it's, well, it's Emmanuel, who's a right back, so he shouldn't be allowed to to wear that number. But yeah, he was, he was guilty of two counts of 1v1 dribbling prowess, plus very nicely hung up crosses, and that does a very good job at League Two level. Um, picked him up in January. He had this horrible uh, time with with illness last season, with um, which which kept him out for a long time at Hull. And then I think by the time that he he got back fit, he'd kind of been left behind a little bit by Hull. They were keen to move him on. I'm still surprised that he's landed in League Two and and in its sort of middle to bottom part because. This, there was a period where his data and his underlying numbers for the sorts of things that you want a fullback to do were top, top League One numbers uh, when he's playing for Hull in League One. So really interesting pickup from Grimsby, having an instant impact as well, setting up two goals in this win. Uh, this Grimsby side who have quite a specific personality, which is really good in the hard games. Um, they've won seven away from home and only three at home in the league, which is pretty crazy. Um, they've they've been amazing in the cup where they've beaten uh, three teams from League One and a team in the championship as well. So, yeah, a strange personality to have, being more comfortable in the tougher games. Uh, I guess to spin it into a positive, it makes you think that there could be more to come in the future if they can get the other bit sorted. Uh, George, what about Carlisle 1, Cole U nil? We celebrated one year of Paul Simpson at Carlisle uh, doing what he's done quite a lot of, winning. It feels like a, a really significant result this for Carlisle after um, a, a kind of strange little run, uh, having positioned themselves in that third place in League Two um, to bounce back against a Colchester side who'd won, was it five, their last five away games under Matt Bloomfield, um, to go ahead early and see the game out. I think it's just one of those three points that just settles everyone's nerves a bit. You know, they went from being outside the top seven for most of the season to suddenly occupying an automatic promotion season, maybe got a little bit dizzy. Um, and they're going to have to, you know, grind this out because, as, as we've said, you've got a Stockport behind who are looking incredibly threatening and plenty of other sides behind them who Mansfield as well hitting form at the right time. Um, Carlisle are going to have to probably be at their... They're probably going to have to operate at a level above where they've been all season if they're going to continue to to be in those auto spots. So it wasn't a vintage performance by any stretch, but um, it was a, a fairly comfortable one with Colchester struggling to really create too much. 
um, despite being behind. So, um, yeah, a big win, if not a an emphatic one. He's got to be in the conversation for best EFL managerial job in the last 12 months. Uh, they've won 23 games uh, of, of the 47, so just under 50% win ratio, plus 11 draws and 13 defeats. Spits out 80 points from 47 games. Uh, that's, I mean, one game more than you get in the regular season, but 80 points generally enough to take you up automatically, at least it has been in the last three completed League Two seasons. And when you consider what he walked into and where Carlisle were at, at the moment he walked in, it is quite astonishing. Um, I'll leave the, the really good words to the magnificent Carlisle journalist John Coleman, who I note was again nominated for an SJA award this year, as he consistently is for his amazing coverage of Carlisle. He wrote, fundamentally, he saved United. The club he used to watch from the Warwick Road end for a second time in his career. He's regenerated its support. He's created a ripple, no, a surge, beyond the pitch, to the stands, to areas such as commercial and retail, and to the intangibles in terms of the buzz, the aura, and the feel around the place. It is basically the dream, I would say, for an EFL fan base. Carlisle are living it at the moment and winning on the weekend, as did Mansfield. George, 2-0 at Tranmere. Three wins in a row now for Stags, four in five. They're motoring. Oh, this is the kind of runner form we saw that propelled them into the playoffs last season. Um, I think there's a chance, you know, I can't say I think Stevenage and Stockport and Mansfield are going to finish in the top three because there aren't <laughs> enough spots, But and Carlisle as well. But it does feel like those are the five in my mind, basically, now. Uh, I think it's the, the likeliest to be three of those five. Uh, apologies to Cobblers fans. I'll be wondering why they aren't in the conversation. But I just think these teams are operating at a level that is going to be pretty hard to stop now. Mansfield, have, it's, I, you can't, I cannot understand why they go through these spells under Nigel Clough where things are so poor because when they're good, they just look pretty much unbeatable and that's the case at the moment. They were the better side here pretty consistently. Davis Keeler done um, a player who I probably expected to have more of an impact this season at Mansfield. Feels to me like he's starting to, I mean, he looks firstly a lot fitter um, than he did at Oldham. I wonder if Clough has put him in a bit of a fitness regime to to improve that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's the kind of player in my mind who could really catch fire under Clough and prove himself to be to be a cut above. And there, yeah, they're just at their best. The Stags are relentless, and I'm not as excited about this Stag party as the one we were on last uh, last year. But um, I think there is a, 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 a spring Stag party that might be in the offing. To be clear, are we talking about our literal stag parties, which we both had no, no. last season? No. Okay, shame. Right, well, they beat a Tramia side who offered next to nothing, who are in a serious rut at the moment. At Bradford nil, Barrow won. It was five without a win before this. Barrow were in a rut of their own, but this was a, a famous Barrovian victory while uh, and Pete Wilde went absolutely wild for it. I'm uh, going to make sure we tweet that video as our... Uh, as our video to re- to release this pod and uh, hopefully you'll have the same sort of excitement as as Pete Wilde had uh, celebrating this Barrow win and they defended brilliantly and it was the, the perfect away game plan for the circumstances really first and foremost defend and keep Bradford away from meaningful opportunities and understand that uh, there's a lot of fans with quite high expectations and if things don't go Bradford's way that they can uh, they can find themselves in a position where the, the kind of tension impacts their performance and sees on on an error from Clayton who got caught in possession in midfield uh, and uh, Barrow scampered away uh, and the goal was uh, Garner crossing it for Kay. It's, it's horrendous from a Bradford point of view that goal. Both Clayton being caught in possession but then the defending of the transition is just 
terrible. Like, only two players actually bust a gut to get back and help out the centre-backs. But they are both... Well, they're all just quite poorly organised. Three of them are near Garner when he crosses it, but none of them actually doing enough to stop the ball across. And then loads of space in the middle for Kay to smash home. So for, for Bradford, it's just weird. They had two really good wins. They were going into this confident. And again, they just put in a damp squib of a performance like they did when they lost at home to Rochdale a couple of weeks ago. Uh, very, very peculiar and a big bump in the road for them. Uh, what about Sutton, George? I'm saying nothing. 2-0 against Donny. What do you always say? Just, just keep just, an eye on Sutton. Just keep an eye on them. Are you still keeping an eye on them, or are you keeping two eyes on them? I'm keeping an eye <laughs> on them. Mate. I'm keeping an eye on them. They're very good. I mean, I was surprised to see um, that you know the Betfair Sportsbook still have them four to one to finish in the top seven um, because they are, I think, they're top of the XG ratio table in the last four or five games. Um, they are another team who've gone through their little mini struggle and come out the other side. Uh, and we know that their home form is is just incredibly reliable. And here against Doncaster, um, it took them until the early in the second half to, to go ahead through uh, Kobe Rowe. And then they made the point safe with Ajaboy racing clear. I mean, I don't know what was happening with Doncaster's defensive shape. I know it was late in the game, but I've never seen a player basically take up the position in between the centre-backs. There are no centre-backs anywhere near him. Um, but yeah, such, such, such good value for the win. No surprise to see a, you know, a training ground routine um, set piece for the first goal. It was your man. Uh, good lift with the assist rather than the um, than the than the goal itself. But yeah, this is what Sutton do and do best. There was a good line in the highlights that said that they haven't scored over two goals in the league game this season, which is quite nice. But they just don't really need to because they don't concede many, and they're normally good for a goal. Um, yeah, they are. I'm not going to tout them for the top three, but they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a side certainly at, at this stage who are in a, in a good spot. <laughs> Northampton fans listening to this being like, are we going to finish tenth? Sounds like it. <laughs> um, boy has got to be on the podium for, for best League Two January signing. Um, five starts, three goals, two assists. And he's just, he's so good. He's so good at the level. And he rejoined a team whose style of play he, he knew better than basically anyone. And he just plugged straight in. And he, he's doing what he does best. Uh, George Salford won, Swindon two. Quite a big result, really, this for, for Swindon, who'd lost three in a row to slide away from the uh, playoff places. Uh, Salford very much within them in that seventh spot and, and kind of there to be shot at. So um, it was a strange decision uh, for Salford to start playing their matches on an allotment, uh, but that's where they're playing them at the moment. Um, <laughs> how did Swindon win this? One shot on target, two goals. I've said that a couple of times this season. It was weird how, I mean, they've had to change their style of play, basically, because their pitch is so bad. Um and the you know the results have actually improved with it, um, but yeah, Salford I can think can feel aggrieved here. Matt Smith missing an unbelievably good chance to make it two 0 and I think they'd have been home and dry. There wasn't a great deal in Swindon's performance to, apart from the result to get excited about. I personally wouldn't say I, I didn't think that they looked to be a, a different side. It was a case of Elliot Watt putting through his own net um, for the for the for the goal. It was. A, a, I think you make your own luck in that respect. I guess they put a ball into into a dangerous area in the box and, and it was Watt who, who diverted home and maybe um, it would have been a Swindon player doing that if Watt hadn't been there. But, um, you know, in terms of the actual quality of the chances created in the game, I think Salford probably created created better. Um, Wakeling's goal, though, I think we've got to give massive credit for. A brilliant improvised kind of spinning pirouette flick into the far corner um, a moment of inspiration in, in what was not a, a classic game um, Swindon only three shots in the match and, and that was one of them uh, and a good ball though over the top from George McEachern um, Swindon's new signing 
um, to set. Uh, it was Darcy, wasn't it? Free down the right-hand side to put the ball in for the second goal. So, yeah, I mean, Salford can definitely feel pretty aggrieved at not getting three points here, let alone one point. Uh, but for Jody Morris, it's all about getting those first first points on the board, no matter how he does it. Yeah, Gillingham beat Rochdale 2-0. Uh, significant for both teams, really. It means it's five wins in their last seven uh, for Gillingham. Don't forget that this is a, a Gillingham side that had only won uh, two games in their first 23. Uh, in fact, it was 14 points in 23, uh, followed by 16 points in seven. So I think we know now that, that Gillingham are pretty good, that the players that they signed uh, in January plus the positive energy uh, with the new majority shareholder, plus maybe a nice bit of uh, uh, helping hand given to Neil Harris by Andy Hessentyler and Kenny Jacket. Uh, it's all uh, mixed together to make a very tasty uh, winning soup. Uh, George Lapsley was very good in this game. His goal was set up by Tom Nichols, the first goal scored by Ollie Hawkins. It's all the big names that they signed in Jan, and they're doing exactly what you want when you sign big names in Jan. Uh, as for Rochdale... Passive, 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 passive defending. It's difficult to watch. It's the same every single week. Um, 16 home games this season. They've conceded first in 11 of them, the worst record in the EFL. You can't you can't do that. You can't get away with that. Uh, six points the gap now between themselves and safety. So more likely than ever that Dale will be going down to non-league for the first time in, in over 100 years. Um, and it's, it's difficult to see a, a, a bounce coming, an improvement coming, whether they decide to twist and, and try a new manager or not. I'm pretty down on them. Uh, and a couple of draws in League 2 as well to finish us off. Harrogate 2, Crude 2. Uh, I liked this one, George, because last week you said you weren't sure where Harrogate's next win was going to come from. Well, it's not from a position of 2-0 up with 10 minutes to go against a team <laughs> that doesn't win very many football matches. So uh, I think it's a fair question to ask uh, still. And Crew have a weird quirk where they didn't score two or more in a game for 22 league games uh, and have since done so in three straight. And that has very much helped their position uh, where they felt like they were sliding a little bit. Uh, I had my eye caught by a Harrogate player called Kazim Olagbe, who's on loan from Southampton. He was at Ross County in the first half of the season. Left winger, wearing number 10, very lively, uh, got an assist and a goal for Harrogate. Um, how about Dan Kemp, eh? For Hartlepool at Wimbledon. 2-0 up, Wimbledon. 2-all it finished, all thanks to Dan Kemp, who had himself an afternoon. Poor Dan Kemp racing off to celebrate his second goal and he face-planted the advertising hoardings behind the goal, the poor bloke, but he dealt with it quite well and got up and carried on going. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, poor Jacko, who managed to, you know, after so many games of like being able to turn Wimbledon into a decent defensive source, but obviously just sacrificing so much from an attacking point of view, to be able to get... You know, get them clear two goals up, scoring fairly early, but to concede twice is a, is a bit of a nightmare, especially at home against a relegation candidate. So, you're not a good result for them, but a, a really important point for Hartlepool. Every point down there um, is so important, especially away from home from two, from two goals down. So, yeah, worth the, um, the the sore nose in the morning. Can't imagine scoring two free kicks like that on back-to-back weekends. He must feel. Mm. He just must feel unbelievable right now, Dan Kemp. Fair play to him. Uh, Walsall one, Newport one. Uh, Classic Walsall really, playing okay, going ahead, and then playing not that great, and then conceding. Um, any playoff bid for them is, is getting further and further away. Cameron Norman, I'm going to say the best reaction to scoring against a former club that I've seen all season. Yeah, uh, but I know that 
there were a few Walsall fans who weren't that thrilled with it, so I don't want to go too far with that. Uh, anyway, good week in the <laughs> EFL. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We had a lot to talk about at the top with regards to Neil Critchley, Gareth Ainsworth, and the general uh, concept of managing football teams in the championship uh, so i hope you've enjoyed it it's been good fun um and uh, we'll be back in on thursday with a betting show there'll be some youtube content this week as well surrounding the midweek fixtures so uh, if you want to make sure that you're always across what has happened in the efl in midweek then the youtube channel is the place to be thank you to betfair for sponsoring this podcast join the ntt20 squad using the description of this podcast if you're an EFL obsessive like us, and we'll see you in there. Two-week free trial if you want to join today. Uh, and uh, otherwise, have a good start to your week and go well.